Okay, ladies, we're going to get started. I'm going to open us in prayer, and um, we'll see what the Lord has for us. God, we thank you so much um, for how you love us with such a faithful, enduring love. We thank you that your kindness does lead us to repentance, and Lord, it is your kindness and your grace that has allowed us to not only be breathing, but to even be here tonight. So we ask that you would just pour out more kindness and grace upon us in, in, in huge measure, abundant and overflowing, that our hearts would just be set aflame for just the greatness of who you are. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Ladies, I, I'm just, and those that may be listening online that aren't here, um, I just want to say how much I appreciate that you guys would come on a Wednesday night, that you would make the effort to do your lesson, that you would be okay with coming and listening to me talk for 50 minutes with no visual aid, no bells and whistles, no costumes, nothing. That means a lot to me, and I'm going to talk about why in my intro here. Um, I feel such a burden, not only our society, but in the church today, um, that, that as a church, as the church, we need to work really, really hard to go against our culture. More and more, our nation and our culture is given over to play. Um, we have... The industries are huge. We have homes that have big entertainment centers. We have computers. We have videos. We have our phones with us, not just that we have to go to, but we carry with us every moment. And all of these distractions from what are the real, true realities of the world. And as believers, we should be dreaming and thinking and meditating on the glories of Christ and how we can spend our lives knowing him and living for him and making a difference for his kingdom, which is why he's left us here. And we, along with our culture, is becoming more and more addicted to amusement. Um, let's think about, even in the church, some of our vocabulary. How often do we hear fun describing the things that we like? Okay, fun. And I don't just mean church things. I mean the things that we want to do. But how often do we use words for our experiences of meaningful significant, edifying, helpful, strengthening, encouraging, valuable, God-exalting. If you think of our vocabulary, it gives a little insight into how, even in the church, we've got sucked into our culture. Um, beware of being swept up into the all-consuming demands of your career and find yourself just on the weekends looking for some fun and entertainment and relief and then one day you wake up and you have no appetite for the things of God. You've been stuffing yourself, John Piper says, with the small that you have no room for the great. I think it's a warning. Um, you may be a connoisseur of restaurants and videos and movies and sports and stocks and computers and all of these things. And all the while, your sense of heaven and hell has died. And that is a warning. And that is a big piece of what we are going to be doing in Romans. Set your mind to think about the big issues, the glory of God and life or wrath, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. In light of that, I ran across something today, and I, and I have a pet peeve about some of these websites that all they do is criticize 
churches and speakers and point out their mistakes. Because, you know, we all bring something to the table in the kingdom and take something away. But this really struck me in light of the great things that we're examining in Romans. Um, and I'm not going to name this church, but it's, it's, it's one of our largest megachurches. Thousands and thousands of people attend here. And recently, um, they did a series, and I'm just going to read you this series. Uh, it just struck me, because you cannot dwell in Romans and the issues that we're looking at and not be sobered, in my opinion. So this is what it said. Um, they did a series on movies, at the movies. Movies are a reflect. this is the description of the sermon series. Movies are a reflection of us. Each story shows us a glimpse of the human experience. Whether it's a team of superheroes defeating evil or the true story of one person's courage and conviction, there's always a moral of the story. But what is it? And what does God have to say about it? Okay, I get it. I think there's great value in getting morals and seeing the ultimate story in our things. But here we go. Join us for At the Movies, a cinematic experience where we'll be talking about blockbuster movies and how we can apply their messages to Scripture. Not only that, but every campus will be decked out in its own movie theme. You won't want to miss it. Okay. I know the intention's good. I watched a lot of the message, and there was some good scripture brought in. Okay. But we talked at the beginning about how in our fallen nature, we have a tendency to make everything man-centered. And we view everything from a man-centered perspective. Whereas God wants us... In the beginning, God, everything begins with him, it's through him, and it's for him. That we need to learn as believers, and especially in this culture, to frame everything that we do in life from a God-centered perspective. And there's only one place that you get that. It's right here. Um, There was a book written a number of years ago called, um, what was it? I didn't write the book. Uh, It was by a guy named Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And... um, This was a commentary on that, and I want to bring this out because I want to encourage you in your Bible study and in coming with this. So, um, talking about entertainment, should followers of Christ care about television or website or social media? Should we spend much time worrying about how much we watch and how little we read? The fullest Christian life is firmly anchored in words and sentences and paragraphs. When God revealed himself to a chosen people, Of all the infinite ways he could have done it, he did it with words. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's in John 1, 1 and 4. In the beginning, God has put the word, his son, at the center of reality, and in doing so has given words unusual power and importance in anticipating him, understanding him, and celebrating him. The heavens declare the glory of God. We talked about that. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay. Faith looks to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And this is one of my favorite passages. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's in Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4. As we look to the unseen through words, we may see God in mountains and ocean and galaxies, but we only know him savingly through sentences. So may we be women 
that are anchored in the word. That is the point of encouraging you and asking you to come and as much as you can do your lesson because that's where you're going to find truth and perspective and strength. So one of Paul's goals, which I I talked at the intro about Romans is a book of arguments. And so sometimes you can, you know, we're taking it in sections. You can kind of lose the flow because it's pretty complex. But he uses a lot of tools that were very common in um, Greek rhetoric. Because literally, you know, they would sit around and discuss and argue and use all of these tools. And so he uses a lot of those um, in different ways, like an imaginary person arguing with him so that he can make his point. He uses a lot of these different types of tools, which sometimes can be confusing and sometimes can lead people to misunderstand what he's saying. But we want to not only break down the details of what we're doing with each section, but keep the flow of the argument as well. So we kind of have to hold both of those loosely. One of his goals, if you remember, I said, and and he has several, and there's different thoughts on exactly why he wrote this, but one of them, I think, was he was trying to forge a unified group of people between the Christian Gentiles and the Christian Jews because there were a lot of differences, and I kind of gave some background at the beginning on that. And so one way you forge a unity is you start to dismantle the things that make you separate, and that's a piece of what he's doing tonight. Started last week with talking about how all are sinful, and he started with the Gentiles. We saw the foundation of this argument. We saw the wrath of God revealed against godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God has given general revelation to all men, even the pagan, through creation and their conscience, so men are without excuse. We saw the downward slide into greater sin as men did not glorify God or give him, y'all remember? Thanks. Those were the two steps away from God. Okay, so God gave them over, and we said that when he gives them over and lets them have what they want, that is his wrath. And so his wrath is being revealed as we see God remove his restraining hand and let men have what they want, which spirals into greater and greater sin, and that's what we saw. And we said that the essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose. That's the essence of it. He gives you what you choose. So that brings us to chapter 2, okay? And so Paul has just finished talking about the ungodly pagans and how bad it got with the whole list. So you can see the, the, the morally upright, and there's different views on whether this is just um, Gentiles that are moral or it's the Jews in this you. There's different views on that. But either way, they're the moral people that are sitting over there saying, you go, Paul, you're exactly right. They are are terrible. And then Paul, because remember, he's dismantling all of these separations because we do what's right. So he starts off in chapter 2, and he says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So, you are the religious, okay? They think they're above God's wrath because they don't do all this terrible stuff or in their mind, okay? But notice he says you have no excuse. Does that take you back to Romans 1.20 when he says, therefore, you're without excuse? He's laying the argument there that you don't have an excuse for this. Judgment 
is making a determination about what's right or wrong in someone else's actions. Paul is saying it's not that they're wrong in assessing the moral standing of others. It wasn't that they were wrong in, in assessing how people are living. And I think this is very significant. They were wrong in assessing their own moral standing. So when you have people that say, well, don't judge, don't judge, God never tells us to not make an assessment about what's right or wrong or when someone, how else are you going to encourage a brother in Christ or share the gospel with someone if you don't acknowledge someone sinful? But the problem was they were wrong in assessing where they stood because they felt so right, because they weren't as terrible as those other people. Jesus dealt with this in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, 1 through 5. I'm going to read that to you. You can jot that down if you want to go back and look at that later. This same thing, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And so I, I think it's important that we look at this whole judgment thing because you know that gets thrown around all of Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? You see the, you see the point I'm making there? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brothers. Now, he didn't say don't ever remove a speck. Don't ever identify a speck. Don't ever talk about a speck. He didn't say that. That's kind of how culture interprets that. He said you've got to start with yourself or you won't be able to see clearly when you look at other people. These people are the self-righteous. And I want to give you two mistakes that they make. Number one, they underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness. They underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness. Do you know what God's standard of righteousness is? Perfection. Because that's who he is. That's the standard. It's not am I better than Bob. Excuse me if there's any Bobs listening. Okay. Uh, they underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness. Because God's standard is perfection. He's so above us. That's the standard. So they make a mistake on that. That's why you need to have a vision of God. You need to understand the holiness of God. You need to work on understanding the character of God to truly get a, a perspective. Don't just limit it to some of his perfections because you get a distorted view. The second mistake they make is they underestimate the depth of their own sin. They underestimate the depth of their own sin. So they underestimate the height of God's standard of, of righteousness, and they underestimate the depth of their own sin. The pagan suppresses truth about God. We saw that in Romans 1. The self-righteous suppress the truth about themselves. The pagan suppresses truth about God. The self-righteous suppress the truth about themselves. They're deceived. Jesus dealt with this on the Sermon on the Mount. Not just the outward, but he dealt with what? The heart. 
sometimes we can do certain things outwardly and feel good about ourselves. But when you start going to the depths of what's really going on in your heart, it's a whole other ball game, which is a big part of what Jesus was doing. Now, Paul is going to give us six principles by which God, the true judge, will judge sin on the final day of God's wrath. I'm going to give you six principles of how he is going to judge sin. We're going to start in verse um, 1. He says, You have no excuse because you who pass judgment, at whatever point you judge, you are condemning yourself. Now, here's the problem. The very fact that they could make this judgment tells you that they had knowledge. So the first principle that God is going to judge on is knowledge, how much knowledge you have. And we already know that everybody's accountable because the heavens declare the glory of God and your conscience is within you. Okay, so knowledge. The fact that they could make a judgment showed that they had knowledge. And then in verse 2, Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So the next principle of how God will judge is truth. First, knowledge that that people have, and then truth. And let me say this, God defines truth. God defines truth. He doesn't just tell us truth. He defines it. Human perception is distorted God's perception is not. He is all wisdom, all knowledge, nothing in the way. Men don't know the complete truth, but God does because he is truth. So when he judges, it will be right because he has all the facts. We don't. We're limited, and we make a measure of judgment. Like maybe we judge a church for their uh, movie night. So I'm just saying. I'm standing here under condemnation at this moment. It just dawned on me that (laughs) I guess I fall into this category, but... Um, using that for an illustration, but isn't it so easy how we do that? Isn't it so easy how we do that? All right, so he's going to judge on based on knowledge, on truth, and then in 4 and 5, he's going to judge based on guilt. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So guilt is the third principle. We've got knowledge, truth, and guilt because we deserve it. God not only has revealed himself in nature, which we suppress, He pours out riches of kindness, tolerance, and patience. God could strike us down the moment we sin and rebel, but he doesn't. He continues to give us life and many good things. But what happens is we harden our heart and we show contempt for his kindness. His desire is for us to repent. And so he's patient, he's kind because he desires for us to repent. He gives time for that. But here's what happens. In light of the fact that he could strike us down at the very first sin, but he's patient. He not only gives us time, but he gives us blessings often in that. But what we do is when something doesn't go our way, we grumble and complain. We don't recognize because, once again, we underestimate the standard of God. 
We think we're pretty good people. So we grumble, we complain against him for what happens, what doesn't happen, what he gives us. 2 Peter 3.9 says that he doesn't wish any to perish. Let me, let me just read that, that context for you. 2 Peter 3.9. He says, and he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, we'll move back up to 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as he's patient and kind and not just striking us down when we sin, we see the goodness of God longing for people to come to repentance. One of the words that I love for this in the Old Testament, my favorite words is hesed. Um, I really was introduced to this when I taught on Hosea, and I just see it all over the place, all through the Psalms, loving kindness. It's translated mercy, goodness. It's translated so many ways because the meaning of hesed is so rich. Often it's loving kindness. And so I, I, I love the beauty of that, that we see both here the justice of God and we see the kindness of God. And that's why I'm saying when we look at the glory of God and who God is, we have to look at all of his attributes. They all exist at all times, and he's not one-minute wrath, one-minute love. And when you just hone in on certain attributes that, that you like or that we sing about all the time, you miss the fullness of that picture. And that's what the beauty of the Word of God does for you. So, um, we often judge God with our distorted human perspective. The question is not why bad things happen to seemingly good people. The question is why he allows any good things to happen to obviously bad people which is all of us. That's the real question. Do you hear that question very often? No. I can't believe God let me breathe this moment. I'm so overwhelmed. Okay, I mean, you know, I'm shocked. We just take it for granted because that is the human condition. We just take it and, and take it for granted. So let me ask you this. And I don't know if I covered that. Let me see if it's coming up. Um, yeah, I'll get to that. Okay, so... In what ways are you showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience with you? Are you grumbling? Are you complaining? Are you doubting him? Are you ungrateful? Are you failing to repent of the things that he's showing you in his word? So that's for ourselves. The other application I want to ask is to whom do you need to exhibit more kindness, tolerance, and patience? We love... I love grace for me, but mercy for me, but justice for somebody else. Isn't that just the human condition? Um, every willful sin is contempt for the goodness of God. Every willful sin is contempt for the goodness of God. I, I want to frame this for you from Jeremiah. I want to read you some verses from Jeremiah. Yes, every willful sin is contempt for the goodness of God. Every willful sin is contempt for the goodness of God. Um, sometimes it's easy for us to see this in Israel, and I want to read this because it does deal with Israel, but it's the same thing for us. And I want you to think about 
your sin in light of this. Okay. I'm in Jeremiah 2. I'm going to read 1 through 5, 11 through 13, and 19. And I'll tell you the verses as I go. This is Jeremiah 2. So the first five verses, let me read it to you. And, and so often when God talks about Israel, I mean, he talks about Israel in a lot of different metaphors, but often it's a bride, a lover. Sometimes Israel is like his child, his firstborn. Sometimes it's the vine that he planted. There's all these metaphors to, to help them get a, a picture of the love that God had for Israel and his relationship. So Jeremiah 2, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So this is what Jeremiah is to say to the people. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. This is God speaking to Israel. I remember how you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. And this, this really gets me. When I think about my own choices, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt? The one that brought him into a fertile land. And he goes on and talks about that. And then he says, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. And, and see if, if, you, if you hear some of Romans 1 in this. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. You hear Romans 1 there? Israel was doing it long before Paul wrote about it, Romans 1. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. There's, there's that proper perspective of God. Declares the Lord Almighty. That was 19. So altogether, that was 1 through 5, 11 through 13, and 19 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah. 11 through 13, and then 19. So let me ask you this question. What fault are you finding with God that's causing you to sin? Now, we would never say that, but that's how God sees it. That's how God sees it. That's the root of it. Your sin is your way of saying to God and the world that God is not perfect. He's not satisfying. He's not beautiful. He's not lovely. He's not enough for you. He's deficient. That's what your sin says to God and to the world. Have you ever seen your sin this way? And that is how your sin falls short of the glory of God. Okay? Of course, the fault is not in God. It's in us. That's exactly the whole point of Romans 1.18 all the way through 3.20, which we're going to finish up um, 3.20 next week.
So, um, we have judgment according to knowledge, truth, and guilt. And then also, it said uh, in verse 5, let me get back to Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath. Okay? So, when we continue with this stubbornness, which that word is sclerotes, which comes, I'm sure you know, like sclerosis, it's a medical term, it means a hardness, and arteriosclerosis is a hardening of the arteries in your heart, which is a physical picture of what we do spiritually to our hearts when we are stubborn and we harden them. And we all know what the result is not good physically when you have that. So the same is true for spiritually, okay? And so I, I want to make this point, and let me read these, um, this verse, Ezekiel 36, 26. We think about a hardness of heart, and we think about when we resist and we don't repent. Ezekiel, even back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, Ezekiel says, let me find it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So when we choose to not repent, not put God in his proper place, we are being stubborn and we are developing a hard heart. Hebrews 3 talks about today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And storing up tells us that we are going to be judged in proportion to our actual sin. That's the fourth thing. Knowledge, truth, guilt, and it will be proportionate to our sin. So when we choose to sin, we choose not to repent, we are storing it up. So some people are going to be storing up more than others. It will be proportionate. Okay, and we're talking about the great white throne judgment here. And so mo most, most people in evangelical think there are two judgments, and we're not going to go into all of those things. But the great white throne is where people who do not know Christ are going to be judged. Okay, and there will be a proportion, I think, both with wrath and with rewards of how we live our lives. Okay. Um, the judgment seat of Christ is where believers go and where all their works are laid bare and that there will be re rewards. Wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up and what's left, and some will have more left than others in that. So whether or not you are in Christ determines which one of those judgments that you're at. But in this case, we're generally talking about the great white throne judgment. So we're talking about it be proportionate and then 6 through 10, the next one is according to our deeds. So our sin is going to store up wrath, and then we're going to be judged according to our deeds. So we're going to look at some verses that talk about that. First, let's start with where he says it here, 6 through 10. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does, who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. 
Um, so when we see that our judgment will be according to deeds, I'm going to give you several verses, and I'm going to read you some places besides just here where Paul talks about that. I'll start back in the Old Testament and we'll work our way forward. Most of these are New Testament. Jeremiah 17.10. You can jot these down, and I'll read them to you, and you can go back and look them up later. All right, so Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward, notice, to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Okay, then we will go to Matthew 16.27. Just to let you know, there are a lot of places where we see that our deeds are going to figure into this whole thing, okay? And we'll talk in a minute about what that looks like. Matthew 16, 27. Let me find that. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Okay? And then we have 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we, This is what I was talking about. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then we'll go to Galatians 6.7-9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Okay? And then, um, I think that's everything except for Revelation 20. So we go to Revelation 20, the last book. Verses 11 through 13. And this is the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and were in it, and the death in Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. So, it's important that we recognize that how we live our lives matters, okay? You can't just think like the Jews, and we're going to see this again next week, that they're the chosen, they're in, they're good, it's all good. It doesn't matter what I do, nor do we want to think that I do all these outward things, I'm in, I'm good. Okay, um, because it's significant. So while this is a really important point, and you might want to jot this down. While Scripture teaches judgment is by works, it does not teach that salvation is by works. While Scripture teaches judgment is by works, it does not teach that salvation is by works. Consistent, persistent, outward works are the evidence of what's in the heart not what you do one time not you know not that you can't do good one time and not the rest of the time not that you can consistently do good and mess up and that negates everything it's looking at the pattern of your life consistent persistent 
outward works, whether good or bad, are the evidence of what's really in your heart. Okay? And it's so funny. I, I get tickled. There's this phrase that people say a lot. I haven't heard as much in recent years. Like, well, they do this, but I, I know your heart. I'm like, no, you don't. I even know my own heart. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I mean, let's just be honest. You cannot, don't tell someone you know their heart. You think you know their heart, but I don't even know my own heart. That's part of the problem, what we're talking about here. So it's, it, it's what comes out. Examine yourself is why it says that, okay? So we got two paths. Are we good? Anybody need anything? Okay. Consistent and persistent outward works are the evidence of what's in the heart. Scripture teaches judgment, while Scripture teaches judgment is by works, it does not teach that salvation is by works. And we'll be getting into that in Romans, believe me. So he talks about two paths, those that are persistent in doing good, and they're seeking glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. Okay, and I don't know if I'm going to say this in a minute, but I want to make this point a lot of people have a problem with seeking glory, honor, and immortality. The motive there is the issue. Are you seeking those things because of who God is and for his kingdom? Or are you just wanting them to terminate on yourself? Glory, honor for me, immortality. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with wanting those things if you want them in the pathway of what God says and for him ultimately because you are a reflection of God as a believer. But if you're just wanting it for yourself, then there's a problem with it. So I want to make that distinction there. So you're living for God is one way. The other is self-seeking. It's always about self, isn't it? Um, they reject the truth. They follow evil. There'll be wrath and anger, trouble and distress. So there's two very clear paths. We see that all the way through Scripture. Okay, salvation is not by works, but it produces works. All right? And so the next thing, the next principle for how God will judge this is number six, I think, is impartiality. Is it number five? No, I'm Oh, according to our deeds. No, that's fine. Stop me if you need it. Five was according to our deeds. Since I'm the queen of typos, who knows? I might have numbered them wrong, so y'all keep me straight. <laughs> and six is impartiality, which is in verse 11. I'm in Matthew. Let me get back over to Romans and read verse 11. So we see how God, we will see that God is impartial. Um, it says, hang on, for God does not show favoritism, okay? God's justice is perfect, okay? God's knowledge is perfect, and his righteousness is perfect, okay? So we know that when he makes a judgment, it's not going to be according to who your parents were or how much money you had in the bank or whether you lived in Israel or any of those things. Now, I want to make this point. Verse 12 says, All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. This doesn't mean that God doesn't take into account the varying spiritual light that people have. So God's impartial, but it doesn't mean that he's not going to hold you accountable or consider. Now, how he does it, I don't know, because he's God. But we see that he's going to consider how much light and knowledge you had. And that's going to be a piece of how he figures all that into your judgment. Okay? And so that's significant. And ladies, I hate to tell you this, but the very fact that you're here slogging your way through Romans, 
going to make you more accountable. So keep that in mind. Okay? Uh, the two groups are those that had the law, the Jews, and those who are apart from the law, Gentiles. All will perish. Okay? And he says in verse 13, For it's not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. Okay? Now, James says, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who puts my words into practice is going to be like the man that built his house on a rock. Obedience matters, okay? And then Romans 3.28, we're going to be seeing that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So once again, there's there's... Judgment is, I mean, uh, righteousness and salvation is by faith. But the way you live your life gives evidence to whether that faith is real or not. Okay? You can't just pray a prayer and walk an aisle and say, I'm good to go, and it doesn't matter whether you pursue God the rest of your life or not. Okay? And it says in verse 16, um, I'm not done to 16. He says, when the Gentiles do not have the law, do my nature the things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So it's their conscience and, and, and what God puts on their heart and just trusting God in nature. So, the, so you don't absolutely have to have the law like Israel thought to be saved is what he's saying. Since they show the requirement of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts accusing and defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So that takes us, I think this is our last principle, which is motive. The secrets of men speaks to the motive. What's really in your heart? Why you're doing the things that you do? And where did we see that dealt with any more severely and explicitly than the Sermon on the Mount? Stand before and pray your prayer on the corner to be seen by men. It's, it's, it almost always comes down to what people are going to think about us, that pride issue. So Paul is not talking about the basis for salvation, but the basis for judgment. Deeds are evidence of your salvation. I want to make that clear. So when you're studying God's word, and we're going to see, we're going to see a lot of these things in Romans because we're going to get into some deep thoughts. And so you're going to see so many places in scripture where there appears to be a tension with things. And it'll say, appear to say one thing one place and another another. You don't just write God's word off. Um, dig a little deeper, but there will be times when you see two things in scripture, and if you can't figure the context to how it makes sense, you look at the preponderance of what you see one place or the other, and then there are going to be places when we get to um, election and predestination and man's choice that you're going to go as far as you can and you're not going to be able to make the pieces fit and then you bow and worship God. Because if you study God very long, you're going to get to those places. So I want to tell you that that's not a bad thing to have things that you're not quite sure how they all fit. So do your study, look at the context. Sometimes it says one thing because the writer is trying to make a point to one group of people and sometimes the other thing because they're trying to make another point. For example, I have twins and my daughter is a studier and, and type A and just killed herself in school and, you know, worked so hard. And then her twin brother at, at one point loved to just, you know, he could 
really sharp. He could come in last minute, fly by the seat of his pants, do well. And so I would tell her, you know, you don't need to study so much. Chill out. I would tell him, you need to study. (laughs) And so what I said was right, but I had two audiences. And so I was trying, and that sometimes you'll see Paul say one thing or Peter say something else. Look at the context, because sometimes that's why it appears you're trying to correct a different thing, okay? So I just want to make that point. All right, Um, 17 through 24, false security. Let me read it. Now, if you call, and now he's honing on the Jews. We know he's honing on the Jews now, okay? Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, If you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infant, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and all of that is true. That is what the Jews were supposed to do. But he says, if you think that, you then, now here's the zinger, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Remember that wrong assessment of their own heart. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? A lot of the Jews would just keep divorcing their wife and remarrying. That was their excuse for adultery, legalized adultery. You who say that people should not, uh, oh, I read that. You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. It's an outward sign. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. They put a lot of pride in the whole circumcision thing in the law. You can see that. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? So you see, God cares about the heart and how you act. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision because you're a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's merely one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but God. So let me just kind of quickly move through this last section. Most of us want security. People want some kind of security, money in the bank, a job, whatever it is, even eternal security. Paul has said that all will be judged, um, and most think that if their good outweighs the bad, they're going to be fine. People that are not really in the word of God, that's what they think. If we expose this lie to people, we are acting in love. The Sermon on the Mount is full of warnings about this false security. Jesus said to those trusting in the outward, Lord, Lord, Many will say to me, did we not prophesy, cast out demons, work miracles? And what does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. The Jews lost sight of the fact that they were to be a channel of God's grace. They viewed the privileges as a right to keep for themselves and look down on others to feel superior and proud. Is anybody flinching with that? The Jews lost sight of the fact that they were to be a channel of God's grace. They viewed their privilege as a right to keep for themselves. They had the law. They had all of these things to to reveal God to the world. They instead kept it for themselves and used it as a way to feel superior and look down on others. 
The moment we think God's blessings should terminate on us is the moment we become a broken cistern instead a well of living water. Whether it's the Bible knowledge that we have, um, what we get at church, the gospel, when we keep it for ourselves and feel good about ourselves or our little circle and we don't care about anyone else, we are becoming a broken cistern. And you know what happens eventually? There's no water in that broken cistern. We are to be a channel of God's grace. They had false security because they were chosen. It was their heritage. For us, we maybe have a Christian family. We're chosen. We're no different. It says that we're chosen as believers. Okay, they knew the law versus doing the law. For us, it's hearing the word versus doing the word. Go to church. Go to Bible study. You just keep here, 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 and you think you're good because you know it in your head, but it's not living out in your life. They had circumcision they trusted in. We have baptism. There's all kinds of things that people trust in. So verse 24 says, God's name is blaspheme. So here's the truth. When I call myself by Christ's name and choose to sin, I blaspheme Christ's name. We get all upset if someone takes the Lord's name in vain or says a cuss word. But the truth is, as believers, we call ourselves by Christ. When we sin, we are blaspheming God. We are taking his name in vain, so to speak, because we bear his name. So what sin do you need to put to death? And how zealous are you that God's name is honored? And how do you show that by the way you live your life? Circumcision was always about the heart. Think about what they trusted in the law and circumcision. When Jesus talked about the greatest law, well, the first law was have no other gods before me or beside me. And Jesus said the first one is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. That is the heart. It was always about the heart. The law itself was about the heart. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. He believed God. He was counted as righteous. We're going to talk more about Abraham, I think, in chapter 4. And that belief resulted in his obedience. He didn't know where he was going, and he followed God first of all. Then God said, you're going to have a child. There was no way. He believed God. Part of that covenant had to do with the seed, that he would have a child. Ultimately, that seed became Jesus Christ, through whom redemption of the world would happen. But that was the covenant. Circumcision is this outward sign of trust and obedience. There was a cost. There was blood involved. There was a sacrifice in the sign of circumcision. It was also, and I've always wondered about circumcision, think, think about circumcision and what it is. Jewish men would be reminded all the time of that covenant both in, in what happened daily and what happened in producing the seed. That sign was always there for them of what it really meant to belong to God. Okay? So Paul ends with saying that being a Jew inwardly is by the heart and by the spirit. And the praise is from God, not from man. So the key is the heart and the key is the motive, not praise from man, what you do outwardly, people give you accolades, but praise from God. So, do you dishonor God? The specific point of this last passage is you boast in the law, but you dishonor God. Okay? Even though, let's go back to Romans 21. 21 For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. 
So the great issue in these chapters is the honor or the glory of God. And this is crucial to see. If we want to think biblically, to think the way the apostles thought, how God thinks, we have to get specific and we have to ask ourselves, what is sin? What is at the heart of our corruption and depravity as human beings? What's wrong with us? Why is there so much evil in the world? What is the essence of sin? The essence of evil is dishonoring God. Given what we've seen in 121, that pagans dishonor God, and now in 223, the Jews dishonor God, we get the message that the essence of evil is dishonoring God. It's feeling and thinking and acting and spending our time in ways that treat God as less than infinitely valuable and satisfying. And so when we get to 323 later, he's going to say, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. They've not honored God. Not treating God's glory the way it should be, the greatest treasure. That's why we need to be saved. That's why we need the gift of righteousness that's not our own. That's why we've fallen short of the glory of God. And I want to end with Jeremiah 9.23. I guess tonight's the night for Jeremiah. I don't know. This is what the Lord says. Now, when we think about how, how we spend our lives, how we spend our times, what we think about, what's important to us, what we worry about, what we stress over, what we long for, I want you to have all of that in the context of this verse, what we just seen and what he says in Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches. And this doesn't have to be outward boasting. This can be boasting in your own mind. But, in verse 24, let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, now notice his attributes here, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. In these I delight, declares the Lord. There's the beauty of what we're just seeing in Romans in the attributes of God. So our boasting is in our relationship and how we know God. That's what's truly valuable, to understand him in all of his beauty, all of his perfections, his attributes. He's the greatest reality and treasure in the universe. So why, 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 ladies, would we spend ourselves, our time on trivial things? Why would we choose fun and entertainment over the deeply satisfying, abiding joy and the fulfillment that brings him glory in our obedience and our pursuit of him. That's the question we all have to ask ourselves. So let's pray. God, we just come to you and say, we are sorry. We are sorry that our lives so often show that we find fault in you, that we run after so many other things. And God, you have called us to work. You have called us to care for our families, to do those things. But it's in, the, it's in the time that we have that we're not having to tend to those things that we are dishonoring you. So I pray that you would help us, God. Give us a tender heart, a heart of stone. Help us to put to death the things that are hardening our heart in stubbornness. And Lord, um, I just pray that you would help your glory and who you are to not be blasphemed among us. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here.